1: John Peter.
2: I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximizer Hunt. Welcome back, everyone. Hopefully everybody's doing well. I have been on the road quite a bit recently. I've been cutting timber, oh, every week on a different portion in areas of New York. Cutting, cutting, cutting. It's been uh, a lot of work. Anybody who does it knows how difficult it can be, how strenuous, how time-consuming it there's a lot of strategy and layout. It's a great time to be cutting your woods. We're starting to get to the tail end. Um, This is early April. So this would be the last week or so that I would be cutting any timber, at least on my property more than likely. And then I'll do some late season cutting usually in August. Um, I think I have a couple trips planned where I'm going to cut timber on properties this year. In fact, I know I do. And I'll probably book a few more throughout the season. If you're interested in that, you know, get a hold of me. Let's see what else has been on my docket. Preparation for switchgrass. A lot of people had been, you know, contacting me about switchgrass seed and putting switchgrass seed out in the landscape and strategies. And, you know, we're starting to get our leaf out period. Um, So dealing with non-native plants, that's a, Good time of year to start thinking about, you know, just various aspects of property improvement and management. So, you know, keep your eyes open and start listening to your environment. Things that you can do. We've had a lot of podcasts on soil health and managing for food plots. So, I think you've probably gotten enough of that. But I'm excited because it's been a while since uh, Todd Chippy's been back on, and we're going to talk about prescribed fire. A lot of people think it's a little bit late in the year to be talking about that dormant season because we're, we're starting to get the leaf out period. But in my area, this is actually the perfect time to burn uh, in the northeast portions of the U.S. and uh, the Midwest. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Hey, Todd, are you on the line? Yes, sir. All How right. are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy to have you back. It's been it's been a bit for us. So <laughs> yeah. what's, uh, what's going on in your world? What have you been up to work-wise?
1: Uh, the usual stuff, same thing. Been doing a lot of hinge cutting and laying out, laying out plots and planning. Um, this morning, actually, I went and uh, put in about 200 giant miscanthus ruts, rhizomes, um, just for the heck of it. Yesterday, I was building some buck beds in a marsh and had a client meeting uh, with a group of about 10 or 12 people just with uh, they're putting together their work list and uh, wanting some guidance. So it's just been busy stuff tomorrow. I'm on the road. Gonna punch in some switchgrass and I've got to replace some rye that got burned out in hot weather. So yeah, so that's, that's the start of the week and I'm going to be burning the rest of the week. I'm going to be burning.
2: So it's timely. This is going to be a timely discussion. I'm going to get this out ASAP so people can start focusing on, on prescribed burning. So you've got a lot of experience burning in your past life. You're a firefighter and you know, I think that's not, you know, it is it is applicable to this scenario, but you now you're in an environment where you're managing vegetation and there's strategies behind when you burn, why you burn. If you're looking at fuel loads or strategies. I want to get into the basics of burning and I want to start with classifying locations to burn. A lot of times, like right now in April, we're going to be burning grassland areas. Those are the predominant areas and, and it'll allow you to replenish those grasslands. It'll allow you to Kind of establish an open plain field in some capacity, or resetting, you know, minimizing the other vegetation that was encroaching on your grassland areas. That's that's pretty typical this time of year. So I want to kind of get into your process, you know, picking locations and strategy, and you know, what, even tools. We can talk about all of that. So let, let's go to the the basics of of burning.
1: All right. Well, what I would say to somebody who hasn't burned anything before, just the very basics is jump online and download a basic burn plan. Um, Oklahoma, state of Oklahoma has a nice one that's pretty basic. And it really talks you through. Now, I still fill out. So when I was on the job yet, uh, we would go out and inspect. We'd take the burn plans that people would turn in to burn in the city. And then we would go inspect it before the burn. Um, And normally that was just one big prairie that was by a a University of Wisconsin outposts they had a prairie there and they would burn it every now and again and, and that was the main um, wildfire that we had and then to, we would also pre-plan any urban wildland interface fire so a lot of people have prairies now and if there was a part of the township that would butt up to the city where that would be an interface fire um, we pre-planned those so now ended up burning and after using the burn permits there to go out and inspect i still use them to this day it's a great memory jogger. It eliminates any problems. And uh, so if you get a chance to go over there, it talks about the landowner's name, the city, the county, type of vegetation present. It really gets your mind thinking about what's there and what you have to look at. Um, adjoining landowners and fire departments, which are normally, if you're not in a completely rural area, are always 911 now. You don't have to look up individual numbers. And then there's pre-burn preparations. What are you going to do? Fire breaks, et cetera and then the fuel conditions and then it's got your weather conditions like a desired range for your temperature desired range for humidity wind direction wind speed smoke management considerations so you don't smoke out a neighbor or smoke worse yet is you don't want it to smoke across the highway or a road where you can cause an accident hit a firefighter killed not long from here or not far from here for smoke across the road impeded somebody's view when he was in the road trying to do something and got hit and then uh it also, you have a list of all the equipment that you'll need. So it's a, that's one of the things that I love is to have a memory jogger like that. Drip torch, matches, lighter, shovel rig, backpack pump, flapper, swatter, chainsaw, leaf blower. Use a leaf blower a lot. ATV sprayers, UTV, torch fuel, fuel in your vehicles, pump fuel, two-cycle fuel. Um, two-way radios usually use cell phones now drinking water you want to stay hydrated that's really important to make sure that everybody there is going to be hydrated it's amazing how quickly you get dehydrated when you want to burn some uh, fence cutters and bolt cutters in case you gotta if it does get away and you got to go through a fence and uh, you may need cold cones out on the road and then it gives you a list of crew members you write down contact just a good idea so you know everybody's there and then a go no go checklist your fire breaks are prepared yes or no neighbors contacted yes or no fire department contacted no uh they always had to contact the local fire department if you burn in the city a lot of the rural areas you just contact your dispatch center and you don't have to let the local fire department know what the conditions is your equipment ready Adequate crew available, your smoke management goals, your crew. This is really important. Is, is your crew briefed on the plan and the safety hazards? Just make sure everybody's on the same page. It always amazes me how even a group of four people, somebody isn't quite clear on what you're trying to do that day and can cause a hazard or, or get hurt. And um, all hazards identified and then let her rip. So... so-
2: so, uh, Todd, I got a couple questions on, on some of the topics you brought up. So what are the most important tools? And I know that, you know, you, you talked about you know water, obviously water yeah. sprayers, backpack blowers. Those are huge yep. hard rakes or you know, metal rakes, yep. drip torch. What, what, what do you see as the most important tools for anybody getting into this?
1: Well, you want to have some water there with, a, with a blower. You can just put out so much fire. It's amazing. Um, and as long as you have, so here's good for the guy doing it the first time. Do it in the evening. It's a little more humid and the, the thermals are more stable. You know, the wind always dies down in the evening and you know, it's going to be cooler in the evening. It's not going to get warmer. So that way it's just a more relaxing fire. It's a little more humid. You got more reliable thermals and you just burn from fire break to fire break um, and even if it gets dark on you, you can still obviously see fire at night. So it's, it's uh, I would highly recommend doing it in the evening when you burn right away in the morning, everybody knows how it's, how the day starts off and then what they predict, you know, a cloud suddenly goes away from the sun and it changes. Now all of a sudden the, the thermals are running uphill on you where it was uh, downhill. Uh, there's just a lot of things that can change when you're doing it right away in the morning. Now, After you get a lot of them under your belt, when we talk about the humidity and the wind speed, you'll start to realize that you'll start to get some wiggle room. Like I'll trade, there's a little more humidity than I'd like, but the wind speed's higher, so that makes up for it so I can get a good burn or there's zero wind but I know the evening thermal is going to take it down and it's less humid than I'd like it to be, but I can get away with this one in between the the burn parameters. And now these would be fires that are in non-sensitive areas, um, open fields, and you're burning grass and you have a good fire break. That's your best start.
2: Yeah. So the other question I have for you is fuel load. So you hit on weather fuel load specifically and kind of assessing that a lot of the areas like I'm in, uh, we're in. This is a burn ban period, which actually this week will be probably the best period to burn. I'm not suggesting that. That's not a good idea. But um yeah. fuel loads, specifically in our area and unmanaged ground, how, how do you typically approach that?
1: Well, it's interesting, yes, Because believe it or not, three weeks ago we had the snow melted. Obviously, the ground was still frozen. I threw my flail mower on and ran out to a the one specific job. It mailed, mailed, mowed a bunch of canary grass down. And the reason is that area stays so wet that I could never get in there with a mower to mow it when the ground is thawed. So, and I wouldn't dare touch that on fire because of the way, the location of it. There was just no way that that wasn't going to have a bunch of flying brands come up. It was down in a hole, and that causes like a. Lack of a better term, like the the dust devils of fire coming up, because the thermals are rolling down and it's coming up. Yep. It's the heat sucks it up. Thermals are going down, and if that drops over just a little ways in that area, I got a fire that that's going to be out of control. So what I did, how I managed that fuel, I went and mowed it. So now it's all laid down. I've got a awesome fire break right there, and I'll be able to light it up in the next couple weeks. And although all those concerns are gone. That's one way to manage that fuel load is if you mow it, it's down lower to the ground. Additionally, you can mow early, er, correction, you can burn it later, like in the May, I'm not afraid to burn in the May when there's green grass coming up. It stresses that existing vegetation even more because you're burning the green vegetation. It burns slower, it burns smokier, yeah. but it adds more stress on the invasives that you don't want there anyhow. And then let it green up again. Hit it with some roundup, and you bring the natives back pretty well.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a great strategy, and something I don't I don't hear many people talk about that at all. So I, I think that's huge. The the deal with the fuel load too, because I think we talked earlier about switchgrass, and that you know this is the time of year to kind of reset the switchgrass. Um, and yeah. a lot of a lot of areas, you know, you're you're burning, but your fuel load is so great, you're going to be. Kind of overcome, and that that can actually spread in your 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 woodlands or forest stands. And I've seen that happen more times than not. So, right, you know, your example of getting rid of some of that grass, like reducing the fuel load, is 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 big, or cutting up into sections. So when you're doing your layout, you know, think about your layout in concert with your switchgrass fields and how you're going to manage it over time. And the areas where you can't burn, you're going to be susceptible to raking, flail mowing, right, rotary mowing, those type of things to get rid of those fuel loads. So you got to be conscious of that. Um,
1: yeah, it's the height. It's the height that gets you. Um, so you can take the same amount of fuel, but have it laying down because you mowed it, and it's going to burn completely differently than when it's standing up. So in other words, picture a pile of sawdust. How it would burn versus compressed sawdust compressed compressed are like wood pellets. You'd put in your stove, or if you, even if you pack them down, they're going to burn slow compared to nice fluffy, um, explosive type sodas. So that's that's a big key. And then if you have that, I would really consider burning in the evening. You're going to have more stable thermals. You're going to have cooler temperatures for yourself, and you're going to have a little more humidity. And the humidity is going to increase as the fire goes.
2: Yeah. So one thing you continue to bring up is the humidity levels and that key range, 30 to 50%, 30 to 60%, whatever that is. And there's indices and like tools you can use and weather tools and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, in those instances, you'll watch like this this week, this week, I think it's April 9th today, you'll get to see those fuel loads, or excuse me, the humidity levels change in the evening, they increase. And like you're saying, yes. that adds to the stability depending on your fuel load. So, like, you're offsetting a lot of these, these, uh, attributes to figure out when to burn specifically. And I agree with you hundred percent. I'm going to talk quickly about, you know, burning strategy, like how you set a fire line and what manner. there's various strategies to that. And, you know, burning uphill versus burning downhill. Um, yeah. You know, can you kind of get into some of the strategies of burning?
1: Yeah. So never, never burn up. Well, first let me put in another thing to consider is um, if you can't burn late, Burn early. Burn when the ground's still frozen and is still wet underneath. What happens is you burn the top off. See, I call it a double burn, and I do it every year. You'll burn the top off, and then the sun shines down, and it, it melts and it dries the rest of it, but there's just so much less fuel there. Then you do a second boring burn, and it's really effective. So consider a double burn is um, a way. To, now think switchgrass, think cattails. Stuff like that. That if you wait till the right time, that it's that it's dry enough. You, there's just so much fuel there that you get a lot of flying, flying brands. So consider burning early and burning it twice. And that goes for late. Sometimes you got to do a double burn uh, in a moist area. Let it dry, burn it again in a week or so. Now sometimes it only takes three days for the sun and the wind to get it dry it up enough that you can light it right back up again. Now as far as the uphill and downhill burn. You never, ever burn uphill, always downhill. Um, if you burn uphill, you get some weird fire behavior for one. Two, the fire races so fast that you're not going to be able to get in front of it if, it if something does go wrong. And three, it's ineffective burn. You're just going to burn the tops because it just runs. You don't get it down into the, you don't get a good deep burn like you're looking for.
2: So you're suggesting, and this is the thing that I've recognized, is if you are burning uphill, you're finding that the oxygen levels increase and push that fire. It depends on the wind as well, but it pushes that fire uphill and it increases kind of the consumption rate, but it doesn't take its time. So a lot of times we're trying to get a slow burn, so we're we're removing that vegetation, that that duff layer that we're trying to remove. I'm I'm just going to throw this out for the people in the Northeast, because not everyone can burn. You know, there's so many people that are promoting burning across the landscape, And it's important. And I'll just say one thing about burning. One, it's the most efficient way to manage kind of our woodland settings, period. Not even a question. It's even the more efficient method to, ma- to managing grassland settings. Like, not even a question. Compared to herbicide, not even a question. Um, the problem you run into in a lot of these areas where there's burn bans or you're not able to burn, you know, it's not it's not culturally acceptable, uh, let alone legally acceptable, um, is you can util- utilize you know, in, in my area, utilize a backpack blower. And in that backpack blower scenario, you're going to clear off that duff layer exposing, you know, the mineral soil. And that's, that's essentially the same thing in some capacity. You're not replenishing the nutrients. Well, you are depending on where you compile the leaf litter, et cetera. But you're, you're creating that opportunity for, you know, sun to soil. And that's, that's really part of the goal of this. Alternatively, or a part of that is recognizing the volume of sunlight. And it's not measuring sunlight Usually, in these dormant periods or these early leaf out periods, it's measuring the sunlight during the summer months. So I do summer burns, and in, in our areas in the Northeast, the most important time to burn, and historically the frequency of burning over the years, over the you know, eons of years, has been um, has, has been summertime burns. And I've burned in the summertime in the Northeast. I'm not saying in New York, but burned in the summertime in the Northeast. And I have found that to be the most productive for forage quality um, in my specific landscape. So just recognize that each eco-region is different. It depends on if you're working in fens. You brought up wetland areas earlier. I'm interested. You talked about cattails, burning in cattail yeah. swamps. Can you talk about that? Because I've never heard anyone even talk about that.
1: Oh, yeah. They're, it's really good to burn in cattail swamps, especially when you're getting uh, reed canary grass as a, as a competition burns it down well that's one of my ways that i do cattail restoration when you get um somebody will have just a large pocket of all reed canary and it it wiped out all the uh the dogwood it wiped out the cattails well that that's all underneath there yet so i'll burn it off and normally that'll be an early burn let it dry burn it again and the strength canary grass reed canary the strength its strength is its weakness, is it turns green right away and tries to grow again before the cattails or anything else does. So you can smoke it even with Roundup, and cattails have a little bit of Roundup resistance to them. So you can smoke it with that, and here come a nice pure cattail stand. You have to treat it. It takes a couple years in a row because the canary there's such a, a large amount of seed in the soil bank, but um, it's a really effective way to do it. The other way would be with cleth and then imazifer for. a, uh, uh pre-emergent so that won't kill your say you have an area where there's re-canary competing with uh with your dogwood that's what i use is cloth and, imazifer, and spray it in there it takes out the canary grass but it doesn't harm your dogwood or your cattails so yeah that, that's yeah that, that's interesting effective.
2: No, that's it's interesting. Awesome. And we, we, I was working with a client recently of establishing a cattail uh, buffer area between some bedding ground. I'm a big cattail fan just because of its lodging abilities, et cetera. so I, th- I think that's a that's a good thing. All right let's talk, let's talk a little bit about firing techniques. So flanking fires, heading fires, you know what what would you what do you typically use each firing technique for and, and you know what's maybe the easiest technique to, to think
1: through? Well, I'll just keep talking flat ground just for the basic nature of it to, to help people learn how to do without getting into the advanced stuff of of uphill, downhill, side hill, and all that. But so on flat ground, always I always burn into the wind. It's just completely ineffective to let it go with the wind. Even if you do, like, somebody, the crew has to leave or you need to wrap up the burn, so then you'll do a backfire just to extinguish it. And you can literally look at where the fire was going into the wind, where you backfired it to just put it out. There's all kinds of grass and duff and stuff in the in the backfire. And the fire that was slowly working its way into the wind is uh, burned right down to the soil. Just gets rid of all the ticks and stuff and a lot of the bad stuff. So usually I just start into the wind, um, use a drip torch, get it going uh, to its fire lines. And the whole idea that I always tell everybody is it should be one of the most boring days of your life. And it is. If it gets exciting, you did something wrong. So a lot of times people come up, they have video cameras, and it's always burning the day. And it's like, um, there's going to be nothing to see here except the fire trickling along into the wind and stuff turning black that was brown. Yeah, so uh, you just let it work itself along. And if it starts to, you know, fire always burns like a hand. It has a palm. The heel and then the fingers. That's how it extends out in fingers. So you just kind of work the flanks to keep them where you want them along your fire line with a leaf blower. And the leaf blower is to extinguish. You know, it blows the duff back in and all the sparks back into the the not the burned area already. And then once you get your sides set and your heel set, you just watch the fire keep going up into the up into where you want it to go. I say if you need to put it out or guys get hot or there's something happens all of a sudden you have your 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 different fire breaks and you just backfire right there and the wind blows it from the from that part it blows it back into the burn and it's all out hydrate a person or take a break
2: yeah one question i have for you is designing your property and considering fire breaks usually roads and or fire breaks tend to be kind of like the the ideal status where you're thinking you know more long go ahead yeah
1: i circle them with clover is what i always do So I always get a, you know, a clove because by the edge of your switch, anyhow, where it butts up to other things, bedding, swamp, pines, thermal cover, whatever it is. I try to get a a nice band, 20 yard band of clover, alfalfa all the way around. Deer step out of the switch to eat it. It's a good place to walk. This is for, you know, one of my pheasant properties is popping into my mind. And uh, it's a great fire break. So like you said, the roads. And then just get yourself some clover band that's always there. It's food. And uh, and, so, and keep in mind, here's something important to keep in mind. When something hasn't been burned for a long time, it can get exciting. It, it's a lot of fire. It's a lot of fuel. It can be like awe-inspiring. But if you come back and burn that in two years, it's boring. And that's what we want. So once you get yourself set up and you've burned... And you burn every couple every couple of years, or maybe every three years. There's nothing to it. There's a lot less understory. There's a lot less stuff, and it's it's just good management practice.
2: So I'm thinking of a property that I was on recently. I've been up in the Adirondacks. There's still snow, so it's it's kind of funny we're talking about you know burning yeah. and snow, but like you said earlier, you know that's that's still. Well, it, it minimizes the, the, uh, the dispersment of, of the fire, if that, that is the case, and you're able to burn. But, you know, I was thinking about these, I, I was thinking about some of these properties that I've been on recently is, you know, you got kind of that pine oak scenario. And uh, talk, I've been thinking a little bit about restoration and restoration projects of resetting, you know, some of the timber species. Our areas be, have become more mesic. You know, there's more of these understory trees, the beach, the you know, the, the hard maple, sugar maple that have kind of taken over these areas and kind of restoring, you know, oak areas. Now, we don't have savannas out in our, our particular eco region, um, you know, that's more Ohio Midwest out that way. But some of these, you know, I, we got scab lands. I mean, I've been, uh, let me think, the other grassland areas. I've done them, you know, fence. You know, there's areas like you are mm-hmm. talking about earlier where you're going to try to improve or kind of recreate those, you know, the, the dogwood species, you know, those type of yeah. plants that were, that are, non-existent what what is the benefit because I think a lot of people are like okay I I have this option this is a tool like what is the actual benefit and it's it's time and place and there's another piece of this Todd is thinking like a mosaic like I would prefer in our areas because I don't want to lose cover I don't want to I don't want to displace quality cover because I have this 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 need to to I think people think this will amplify my landscape. Like I'm going to do it in really specific areas. And typically I'm going to approach those old field settings with, with, uh, with fire. I, I'm not going to promote it as much in you know areas where I'm trying to manage for timber per se, but at the same point, if I'm trying to restore kind of an Oak area or it's a savanna, um, depending, yeah. I'm going to thin first and then I'm going to burn and I'm going to burn. I'm going to try to burn during those early season periods um, just because, you know, if you've noticed you know, when that leaf litter falls, those oak leaves have a tendency to kind of be like a wick. They're kind of like a match. And yeah. they, if you ever go goof around everybody, take one of those and light them on fire. You'll, you'll be amazed at the difference between that and, and a sugar maple leaf. But, you know, I'm thinking time and place. So like when you're focusing on burning, like what is your decision making? And think about an example of property you worked on and you gave a couple earlier, but why are you burning this area and what's the benefit?
1: Well, generally, it's to to get the bare soil, get rid of the trash. So sunlight hits the bare soil after that. Um, and it's a really good technique. After you burn, um, let it green up a little and spray, but it's still black. It really heats it up for switchgrass, gets switchgrass to blow up. But like anything else, I would never burn an entire property. So even if the entire property needs to be burned or the entire woods needs to be burned, you stair step into it. So you would burn a section of it, let it let it teach you what's going to happen, let it show you um, what what native species are there, what you're going to need to plant, and yeah. burn another section. So you never clear, clear the table completely. And then if you're going to decide to burn up a fence line, it gets rid of the trash, and you've got a clean slate to then establish dogwood, silky dogwood, red dogwood, uh, hazelnut, whatever kind of shrubs you want to put in. But it's it's a whole different experience and success ratio planting into say you're making a new fence line or planting into old fence line that you burned all the trash out and the millennium of seeds that are laying on top of the ground and start off fresh um and then maybe you have to use some chemicals and then start off fresh you're going to have a, a much better success rate
2: would you prefer in some instances well so dormancy season right we're on the tail end of that in our region but obviously down south so you're burning down south right now. You already had green up you know, your temperatures, your ground temperatures in the 60s, right? Totally different. You're dealing with uh, Kogan grass. You don't want to burn. Like you got a total different issues down south.
1: Yeah, they've been burning. They've been burning down there for a couple months now already, from what I saw. Yeah. social media
2: yeah so we're like behind in that capacity but like dormant yeah. season burning to me is the most preferred but like i said earlier in my eco region i'm trying to burn in, in june uh in july Yeah, you can
1: burn you can burn well like grass you can burn into may it doesn't hurt anything after that it's pretty tough to get it to go and then like when you're talking about burning inside of the woods that's another example where a double burn um sometimes works really good because no matter what those leaves hold a lot of moisture underneath so the first time you burn through a woods, you burn all the top, the top down, you burn, burn down to moisture, generally speaking, and then just wait a little bit and there's enough trash there that you can light it up again. And then that's where you get, it's even more effective. And then you all of a sudden the native trees, species, roots can come up and uh, if if it's like aspen, that's going to sucker, which they come back really fast. After every burn, otherwise, um, and the oaks aren't damaged at all because their bark is designed to take fire, uh, that corky bark, and um, it gets rid of a lot of the species that you don't want. And then you can just go go ahead from there.
2: Yeah, and I want to be clear, when I talk about burning in June and July, I'm usually spraying those areas out, and and those are field settings, so to speak, and then burning. And I'm trying to do it at the tail end of July, get more of a forb flush in those areas, so that's that's a strategy. Yeah. Have you heard of the bow season burning too, where guys are burning in August and a lot of times they're throwing clover down in those areas and that works pretty well.
1: Yeah. in the fish and wildlife, they'll do fall burns occasionally. I mean, if you've got a a certain area, a piece of land that I own actually is, is that um, it just never dries out enough until fall and you do a fall burn. Um, So for one year, that portion of your property isn't infected, but it comes back in the spring really nice. And one, then you're, you're good from there.
2: Yeah. One study I read recently was talking just about the intervals and frequency. And like, I mean, in your like regiment, you're not burning every year, at least in most instances. It's every couple years, every three years, every five years, right. depending.
1: Exactly. Yeah. yeah.
2: And that root response in those areas after you give them time. So those plants establish, you, you top burn them. You're going to see kind of better growth rates that next year. And then at the, at the same point, you can get in there and manage those. And there's another piece of this is where you can't burn, what's your accessibility in these areas and how much herbicide are you willing to apply? Alternatively, you know, I'm working with clients that don't want to apply any herbicide. So what they're using is they're using spray torches or um, they're using uh, propane torches and they're burning plants, you know, during that growing season, that early growing season, you can hit like uh, autumn olive is a good example. Uh, It's got a thin bark Mm -hmm. layer. It's easy to burn. You got to hit 160 degrees. You just torch it. And um, you know, that's where you're spot treating, which is interesting, spot treating with burning versus actually spot treating herbicide. There's there's you know, there's strategies kind of around each one of these things. So I'm trying to think a little bit more about the benefits, at least, you know, right now versus you know, later in the season versus again dormant season. You're talking kind of that November kind of, you know, January, you know, into kind of that spring period. And it's just gonna have what you're going to do is you're going to clear the plate, you're going to reset, and then what's ever in the ground or available at that point in time is either going to be susceptible to the weather and elements, and that's going to either promote it or kill it. And uh, whether it's, you know a hard seed or a soft seed, it's either going to propagate it and allow it to sprout, let's say, in the spring period, depending on when you burn, and that's going to be beneficial depending on what you know what's resident so what what's likely resident in your area or in this case it could be exposing seed that's been resident in there for years and years and years and you may have you know species that you didn't anticipate so it's kind of a, a wait and watch kind of scenario so you don't really always know what's going to happen if you again burning now you're going to promote grasses in our particular area if you're burning later you're going to likely promote kind of forbs and that dormant season or that late we used to talked about fall period that's a great time to burn it's just is it is it conducive does it benefit your hunting you got to think long term rather than short term big property small property those type of things so i think there's a lot that goes into kind of the strategy at least from my perspective all right anything good else point. yeah anything else you're thinking about or anything related to fire fire behavior strategy anything else that would be beneficial to somebody like thinking about this a little more in depthly
1: well i think just download those burn plans and and go through it because that'll give you that'll be a good memory jogger before you do it to think about it. and then start small, you know, make a fire break around a small area, see how, see how you do, it. see how it burns, see how you like it, learn a little bit from it before you go big, before you light up 10 or 20 acres or 40 acres. Yeah. Um, it'll be your best bet and consider doing it in the evening. And yeah, that's the thing in the Midwest. Um, we have a very tight window for burn. I, my whole business could be just burning. You get so many calls for people to burn now with everybody having prairies and, uh, you know, that, re- that prairie restoration. And you have to burn them every so many years. Every year I get calls in cities and out. That could be the whole business. But it's such a tight window before the humidity, especially in the last couple of seasons. You lose your humidity, the wind is high, and it just they shut down all burning rightfully so because you could take out an entire county um so it's a small window of opportunity that you have to burn
2: yeah it is a small opportunity and like you said it's it's hard to build a business around that but it is interesting and we were talked about the benefits there is a lot of benefits and like i said earlier you know i i actually did a i read through some information put out by harper reese craig harper recently and he just Talked about the herbaceous component, depending on the time of year, you know, it was up like 130 something percent uh, each burn interval that he had. And I forget what the frequency of that, but that was down in the coastal plain area. You know, they were looking at, you know, the intervals and benefits and then obviously the food element of this and getting these areas where there aren't a lot of snags, there aren't a lot of down you know, trees, those type of areas. And I manage kind of these woodland settings for that specifically where we're pulling those tops out. They're easy to manage in those capacities. It's not that you can't burn down timber. Um, it just minimizes kind of the embers or you about Yeah, I'm glad,
1: I'm glad you brought that up. I, I try to remove any of that stuff because it literally burns forever and you can't, it's punky. It keeps burning and it's difficult in that rural setting to, uh, To have enough water with you to extinguish those.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. And then paint...
1: It takes a massive amount of water. And then if the wind picks up overnight or the next day and it's trickling out, that's a huge project to chop those up and extinguish when you get a a dead snag on fire or even old punky logs that are laying down.
2: In those instances, um, what I've experienced is guys continue, they go back in with backpack uh, backpack sprayers, um, or blowers for that matter, and they're trying to extinguish those particular areas. That's why I don't have uh, snags, so I'll have an area for snags, I usually do like six to eight snags per acre roughly. And I actually have them just right outside the bedding areas and adjacent to that, that's where I'd have, you know, fired areas or woodland areas where, you know, the canopy's under 50%. You're managing for specific vegetation and you're doing intervals within that. So when I mean, you think about your design and layout, you can design for fire. And that's just kind of an important consideration. Yeah, you know, that's kind of my my take on things.
1: Hey, well, John, one thing on, one thing on closing, I just want to um, emphasize is that leaf blowers are simply used in place of a rake so they just blow the the embers the trash everything back in to the burned area and that's what sets a fire line so you, you mow a fire line you light it up and then you let it get about two or three feet out and you use the leaf blower to blow it in and then you can use it to blow stuff into your uh, into your edge back into your burn area to set that line i did see a celebrity hunter that seems to be in trouble for stuff had a leaf blower and was doing a burn, burned his whole pickup truck. And in the video, he was taking his leaf blower and putting it on his pickup truck as though that was going to put out the pickup truck fire. And uh, obviously, that's just a bellows. And so mm. it's not an, The leaf blower is not an extinguishing tool. It simply is like a rake. It just blows. Instead of raking the duff back in to set the fire line, you let it burn a little bit and that blows the stuff back in right down the bare ground.
2: Do you, have you had experience, and this is like, I've done this with like small burns where everybody, like you have a crew of like, let's say two or three, four people, they all have like backpack sprayers on with water. Do you you typically have, do you, I don't see much of that, but like in my, I don't want to say I'm doing this in my areas because I'm not, but in areas where I have worked, I have seen them do that. I think that's like a pretty, pretty decent strategy for for what you're talking about specifically.
1: Yeah. You have backpack sprayers and then if you, you like, it works really good to put a backpack sprayer with a mister, you know, spray the water right in front of it. Ah, Um, It's just like a fog stream. So use both use your sprayer and you have a, just a handheld leaf blower on the other hand, and it just powers your water. That would be more, that sets a a line really nice and it's good for extinguishing. Um, Also like say the fires getting up towards something you don't want to burn. One of my most stressful burns were, was in the city pine tree canary grass going up the pine trees and it had to be burned. She wanted it burn. It was next to a lake inside of the city, but I could not burn the pine trees under penalty of death because they were planted by her husband who was deceased and, uh, it was now deceased and they were her, the memory trees for him. So that was where that worked really good. That stand between the fire and the leaf and the pine trees with a leaf blower and a mist and you could just cool the air just go and we had guys right there and just cool the air so that they weren't even singed from the fire, you know, if a, a wave of heat would go towards them or anything.
2: That's an interesting, interesting idea. Oh, the one thing I want to mention for backpack uh, blowers per se, for putting in the fire brakes, um, one is thinking about the, the gap or the distance between, you know, making sure nothing falls in those and thinking your yardage sp- specifically it depends on your intensity you burn etc but the the backpack blower itself is i like the backpack blowers that you don't have to take them off and start them up the ones that have the the recoil pull on the side and, and that's what i that's yeah. what i have um those are just really advantageous where you got some guys like i said earlier with the water sprayers and then some guys with the backpack blowers that seems to be kind of like the ideal scenario and then you're transporting people background on, on atvs utvs what have you so seems to seems to kind of work well at least and then having radios is probably the, the next most important thing so you can communicate because cell phones don't always work in areas so it's it's important to have right. radios Yep. Very good point. Yeah.
1: Okay. And I always wear the mask, the order the mask, um, you know, the filter, the right filter masks are really important. You'd be surprised how much you breathe in and how much you're snotting and coughing if you don't have those on. And uh, throw the helmet on, you're good to go.
2: Yeah. Goggles. I, yep. yep.
1: Then those masks aren't that expensive. They're maybe $60 and they last for years. You can put new filters in them.
2: Yeah. I think, think about your health. That's important. Very important. All right, Todd. Anything else from you? I think this is pretty pretty detailed for most people. Yeah, I think we're good. All right, cool. All right, man. We'll uh, we'll be on again uh, probably soon. I got to get the crew back on. I've been just bouncing around. I got a couple more podcasts coming out, and uh, we'll get you back on and figure out what else you got going on. Sounds good. All right, talk take soon. Take care.
1: See ya. Okay, thanks, Todd. Yep, take care. Bye. Bye. Maximize your hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out WhitetailLandscapes.com.